The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Hi there and welcome to this special edition of Out of Office, the podcast in which I ask my guests questions they don't typically get asked when they're in the office. My guest today is the founder and CEO of one of the world's most valuable fintech startups. Millions of consumers around the world use a buy now, pay later service and a good number of them use Klarna. It was founded when Sebastian Shivakovsky was still a student. Sebastian, welcome to Out of Office. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. With Klarna, which uses a model that you can buy now, pay later, but there is no interest, there are no fees. It does allow a lot of people to afford things they wouldn't normally be able to. I'm curious, what drew you to this model of financial inclusion? Uh, well, we started actually in a slightly different angle because we started in markets that were predominantly debit card markets where people haven't picked up credit cards to the same extent they did in the US and the UK, such as Sweden and Germany. And in those markets, we realized that debit cards are great. You know, preferably people should always spend money they have, but there are obviously occasions when credit makes sense. And especially one of them is when you shop online because the delivery of the product doesn't happen at the same point of time you make the purchase. So when you use a debit card, you're kind of risking your money and hoping to receive the item that you saw in that picture on the web. And so already there, you know, already when we started 16 years ago, people felt that's a little bit unsafe shopping online. That was still the case back then. So credit provided them with the trust and security of, you know, touching and feeling the product before they paid for it. And then uh, obviously also we started seeing other benefits. Like if you do a return today, you may wait for three weeks until the merchant settles the return, which means that, you know, credit card, you don't really care because it's just your balance. But on a debit card, you're actually waiting for your money that you want to spend elsewhere. So like, um, so we realized that in, in an environment where you shop online, credit makes a lot of sense. And additionally to that, we also saw that, you know, the smoothing out of your cash flow is actually helpful if it's done at a low cost to help people, you know, understand the economy and, under, and, and get closer to that question we all need to ask ourselves, so am I living above or below my means? Well, if you smooth out your economy, if you smoothen out your costs and your incomes, so that it's easier to track both, then it's actually easier to understand that as well. There is a fear that it could push people into debt. How does this sit with you from a moral point of view? Yeah, I think, look, my, um, myself, I was brought up in an immigrant family and my parents struggled with that when I was a kid. So I have a very you know, strong emotional connection to what that means and what impact it has on people's lives. I think that what credit is, you know, that's what's exciting and challenging about credit. I actually think credit overall is good, good for society. I think it's helped economical growth. I think it can be good for consumers as well. But I think most of us in a lot of proportion, especially in the US and UK, have been using credit cards. And those products are actually have already, you know, historically meant that people may have spent more than they could afford. And, and also those products, unfortunately, uh, were built in a different time where people running these businesses back in those days did not have their customers' best interests at heart. So there were, you know, they created all kind of dirty tricks to encourage us to spend more than we could. 
for example, they push the credit limit in your face all the time because that you know is is proven to increase the likelihood of you spending more than you have. They uh, have constructed revolving, which is a very strong, strange concept where you take your whole monthly statement and you borrow against it, against your groceries, against everything you purchase. And then every month you pay 124th. We call them like infinity loans. You pay on that forever. So there's a lot of these things that the credit card companies did that wasn't necessarily in our best interest. And so what we realized is we, we think that the future is not as simple to say, let's ban all credit because that's not going to work, but it's finding better products. And those products should be built uh, one, they should be low cost. Uh, you know, we don't charge interest as an example because merchant pays for, for for the cost of our product. But they should also be easy to understand. It should be installments. They should be fixed term. They shouldn't be revolving, um, and so forth. So we think as an like everything else equal. If ten years from now less people have credit cards and more people have debit cards, but then occasionally they use buy now pay later when it makes sense, versus more people having credit cards, we think that's a better world, and that's why I feel that's that's what makes me sleep well at night. You mentioned you were an immigrant kid. Your parents moved from Poland to Sweden, like many immigrants do, in search of better opportunities. But I didn't. I know it didn't really work out that way for your family, and it was rough when you got to Sweden. How did that influence your views towards money? No, I think. I mean, I, I don't think it's a it's a coincidence that you know. I think somebody, some some time I read that fifty percent of the tech companies in in, in Silicon Valley are are started by immigrant kids. I think my, my parents gave up, you know, on their families, on their friends and all of the, the security that comes from that to move into a totally different environment where they couldn't, they didn't know the language. And they did it for us. They did it for me. They did it for me and my sister because they wanted to give us a prerequisite to, to have a different type of life. And I think that when you've grown up with that background, it creates a tremendous drive, a tremendous interest in trying to, you know, shape your own life, take, do something with it. And you also know that I couldn't trust on anyone getting me a job or anything. Like I had to, I get my own job. I, I got my first Burger King job when I was 15 years old, and then I got tons of other jobs. So like I think it creates something very healthy in that sense, a lot of drive, a lot of passion, and also a sense of like you do want to kind of correct that injustice. Because my parents were intellectuals, academical backgrounds, really well read. And 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 you know, my my father ended up driving a cab or being unemployed. And and, and as much as cab can be, you know, an amazing job for him, it was very you know, uh, very uh, tough. And, and I think that like, you, you kind of get the sense, you want to correct that, what you kind of feel is like unfair. I don't know where the fairness really exists in life, but like you, you feel that there's that thing. And you, I think that is what, you know, what creates a, creates a drive. And in, to some degree, my, because my parents divorced as well, I did kind of associate their divorce with uh, a lack of money because that was the discussion at home all the time. We can't afford this, we can't do that and so forth. So obviously I did to some degree believe that money would be an important way to solve the problems of the family, which unfortunately turned out to not entirely work that way. But as a child, yeah. at least that was my interpretation. And as a child, I did read that, um, you know, you ate pancakes for your meals for sometimes for days on end. And of course, as a kid, you think, woohoo, that's great. But then later on, you realize that the reason you were eating pancakes is because your family couldn't really afford uh, groceries. If you had a Klarna kind of business model available to you back then, would things have been smoother, perhaps, for your family? I I tend to believe so. And I know like some people, you know, I'm going to have people always going to challenge me on this point, right? Because people think, but you're a bank, you borrow money and so forth. Yeah, but I know you, you, can, you can sit on the side and complain about banking, complain that some of the business models aren't great or that credit cards leads to overspending. Or you can actually launch a bank and try to do it better. And that's, I think, kind of what we've done now. I, I, I should be, be, be clear, though, that 
That was not the case when we started a company. When we started a company, we were simply trying to build a service that worked and people were willing to pay for because they felt they brought value. But to me, it's a difference. When you start a restaurant, you have one type of responsibility. When that restaurant suddenly turns into McDonald's, you have a different type of responsibility. So you need to think about these things as you grow up and, and your, industry, your business changes. But with that, I say, yeah, I do believe so. I think the, the kind of holy grail of finances and banking must be to help your users understand, am I living above or below my means? And that is, sounds like a simplistic question, but it's actually very hard for most people to really understand because their income comes in different, I mean, they may get salary every second week, but then they have some taxes coming back or whatever. And then their spending is all over the place. Sometimes they have you know, a month of tremendous spending and sometimes much less. And then what if, if I finance this car and at that price, I may get a, a car with lower fuel consumption and then that might be better for my monthly cost. But if I do this, and so like, it's actually quite difficult for people to really be able to grasp in real time to what degree. And, and actually credit and installments can help smoothen out if it's done at the right cost, help smoothen out and understand to a better degree how, how you are in, in regards to that question. So I do think that, that it's part of the solution. It's not the whole solution, obviously. And there are tons of situations also where credit actually makes a lot of sense, even financially speaking. I mean, take it as an example, many cities today, if you buy an annual card for the metro, you're going to save a lot of money compared to buying everyday tickets. Uh, but not everyone can afford to do that. So like, that's a great example. of There's tons of situations, obviously, where credit actually makes sense, especially if the credit is, is cheap or low interest, then actually it's also financially correct to use it, right? So it's a little bit more complex than sometimes trading in media and so forth, like we can simplify a little bit, but um, that's why it's great. We have these longer conversations. We have time to talk about it. <laughs> no, exactly. Exactly. How has your own personal life story influenced your views towards immigration? It has become, you know, your faces, a migration crisis. I know it is a sensitive and yet a politically charged issue in Sweden. You have elections coming up next year. What is your position on immigration? Oh, now you got me. This is a very tough question for me, uh, but I have been very, you know, consistent in my opinion on this. You know, I think I understand a, any country's concern about uh, we have limited resources. How much do we spend on this and that? And I can understand that perspective. But but at the same point of time, look, from my world, it's just that like if if if, if there's an act, if there's a war going on or something's going on in a country, those people are in desperate need. They need help now, right? And at least personally, from my own perspective, I just don't understand how I'm supposed to be able to say no, especially since we in a lot of the countries that this refers to already live in what is, you know, a very, very different level of quality lifestyle and access to food and, and the most basic supplies. So to me, it's, it's very foreign, the idea to not to, to say no to people in that need. And then I understand that then once you've said yes, then you help them. you got to figure out also what happens after that and integration and so forth. I, I don't want to pretend that these are uh, simplistic questions. They're very complex. And I'm, I'm not a politician. I'm not a society person. I don't have answers. I'm just a, a banker trying to build products for consumers. But, but at least that's from, from an empathetic perspective. It's very, very difficult for me to say no when, when something acute is going on. And then secondly to that, I just, my impression is all the time, like, like, you know, when, when Poland was supposed to, since it's my home country, when it was supposed to enter the European Union, a lot of the other European countries actually closed their borders and didn't allow for the first couple of years for Polish people to move to other countries. Sweden did not. Sweden did allow it. And tons of fantastic people, both uh, kind of, you know, plumbers and builders, as well as uh, engineers and all kinds of works 
moved to Sweden um, with that background. Uh, to sometimes to me, it feels just that it's the irony of the world that I wonder whether the biggest maybe loser in that sense was Poland themselves, who's seen tons of ambitious, really you know hard thought, hardworking, and and smart people move abroad uh, rather than stay in that country. So maybe it should have been Poland that should have been worried close to borders rather than the other way around, um, because I think these people have significantly contributed the economical growth of their neighboring countries. I want to go back to what you mentioned about your father. And your father was an immigrant. He moved from Poland to Sweden. He was highly educated. He had a doctorate, but he struggled to find work. He drove a cab. You've admitted that he struggled with alcoholism. He had it pretty rough. What did you learn from his struggles? Well, it's a good question. Well, first and foremost, I was, you know, Ironically, even though my father did struggle with alcoholism, uh, it, because I was drinking myself, I did not recognize that I had a similar problem, right? And so um, that's, that's just how strange it can be. But uh, I did eventually realize, and I did stop from a sober alcoholic today since actually 10 years. I think I celebrate 10 years of sobriety today. <laughs> yeah, it should be, should make right? some off of that, yeah. Um, so, Absolutely, congratulations. <laughs> thank you. Um, so I think that like that, Obviously, seeing that, I, 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 it obviously, you know, it's a tough question, and and it breaks my heart because, you know, he was an amazing person, had such potential. But I do think that as that was growing, that disease was growing with him, it became tougher and tougher for him, and I think that was what didn't allow him to fully function in society as well. So I learned that. I learned that that's hard, but I think maybe the most important lesson and the toughest one was that. You know, I always believed that I was going to help. I was going to, you know, create money for myself. And then I was going to support my family. And it turned out, especially when somebody's in that situation, that you sometimes helping, you have to do the opposite. You actually have to set limitations. And um, as much as I tried to support him financially first, I realized that that was actually fueling his ability to, uh, for his abuse. And so I had to stop doing that. And I, had, and I was counseled to stop doing that. And that was extremely tough extremely difficult to start setting limitations to my own father in, in regards to these topics. But it taught me that, you know, being nice and being kind isn't always just about, you know, just supporting without any limitations, but it actually can be the, the best thing you can actually do sometimes is put limits. I think that was the biggest learning uh, for me from, from that. And made me also think a lot about in, in a social democratic country like Sweden, where do you put the limit between supporting people and supporting people to be successful for themselves. Uh, and finding that balance, I think, is maybe there, maybe among the most difficult ones that any government faces, really. I mean, very tough balance, uh, absolutely. And you never really got a chance to say goodbye to your dad either. Is that right? No, I mean, I, that was, you know, was maybe the toughest part of my story with him, right? Because we were in a situation where he wanted my uh, financial support because he was getting evicted from his apartment. And I was struggling. I, I found that very, very difficult. I didn't know what to do uh, with that because, uh, you know, was I going to support him or not? And, or would this be an opportunity for him to take responsibility of his own life? And, and, and it was very, I was very mixed. And then he made a phone call to me in the afternoon about five o'clock, five, six o'clock. And uh, I saw his phone number and I, I, I just didn't feel I had yet decided and I didn't have an answer for him. So I decided to not answer. And then um, a few hours later, when I had decided I tried to call him, I couldn't get hold of him. I tried to email him, I couldn't get hold of him. But 
that that happened all times. So I didn't really reflect on it that much, but I had some uneasy feeling in my stomach. And now uh, in the morning, my my mother called me and, and said that he was dead. So it, it, that was obviously a, a very tough situation for me. Oh, I can't even imagine how difficult that must have been for you. But I know in your early years with him, you had some wonderful memories and uh, you shared some really good times with him. And he was very encouraging of you and your young business ideas. You had started to dabble in business when you were very young. You read Richard Branson's books on business and your first business plan involved a local radio station. Yeah, it was actually only one among many, though, unfortunately, but I think, yeah, and it's right, though, but you remind me of something that's very true, though, is, which is that and I, that's always what I really appreciate with my dad is that, like, I mean, when I was a kid and I would come home and say, like, for example, we had we were living in one place where there was like a, in Uppsala, my home city, everyone was bicycling. Nobody was taking the car. So there was like it was a bicycle road and everyone was bicycling. Doing that. And I was like, mm, you know, a lot of traffic, a lot of traffic coming by, a lot of customers. So I started making these drawings that I wanted to sell there. And I was like mass producing drawings. For, I mean, I asked my parents to give me much more paper and pen. And I was like, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm seriously like seven or eight years old. And I'm going to sell all these drawings to the people biking by. <laughs> but the thing is, they never ridiculed me. They never, dad never ridiculed me. He never, never laughed yeah. about that. He always supported that. And he was always very supportive in that. And he always like, they, they really gave me, you know, tons of support uh, in that case. And. And he also stretched my fantasy and I have, you know, wonderful memories of when he would take me out in the forest and he would talk about, you know, uh, Asimov and the foundation that's now big on Apple was uh, one of our favorite books we read together and, you know, and other things like that. So he, he, he stretched my imagination in a way that I really hope to be able to do with my own children as well. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple like as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. So you've been an entrepreneur since you were very young. What are the essential qualities for an entrepreneur and as an entrepreneur, but also a leader of a very large and valuable firm today, what's the most essential quality a business leader needs to have in your view? Yeah, I think, I mean, first and foremost, I think there's many paths to success. Uh, so people always want that like silver bullet, but I think there's many ways. But I think at least for me, I think what is very valuable is obviously being service-minded. I mean, when I was working at Burger King when I was 15 and a family dropped a Coca-Cola out in the, in, in the restaurant, I would run out with a new Coke and fix it and clean up for them and like, you know, really make it. And I, I kind of realized that you don't always get that quality of service at Burger King. <laughs> Unfortunately, as much as I think I'm sure the company aspires for it. So I realized that like, for whatever reason, I, I really enjoyed putting a smile on people's faces. And I enjoyed the part of service I really like is it's about empathy. It's about really understanding the customer's perspective of the situation. So to me, it's really connected to empathy, actually. Having a strong empathy is, is, is about understanding the customer and being obsessed about the customer. I think, I think that's critical. I think, you know, lack of patience of just being, you know, uh, you know, want everything to happen today. <laughs> just now, now, now. Uh, I, think, I think that's important. And then for many years, I did not believe I was a competitive person, which um, was really funny because 
I didn't feel I was competitive because I would go bowling with my friends and they would all say, you know, they would win and I would be like, whatever, I don't care. But then I watched this movie about Bjorn Borg, the fantastic t- the Swedish tennis legend. And there's a yes, player, of course. Yeah, yes. and, and he was, you know, he was similar to me, a young kid from not the most wealthy background. And at that point in time, tennis was still a sport for the wealthy. <laughs> so, so he got ridiculed by a lot of his friends. And then his coach came in. And in, it is a scene in the movie where his coach said, and I was watching this on the plane, his coach says, John, you're not like the other boys. This is a matter of life and death for you. And th- they don't feel that way. And, and when I heard that, I started crying in the, in the plane. People were like, watching me. What is he watching? Bjorn Borg? Like, <laughs> like, why is he crying? But I realized, like, that's how I feel. That's how I feel about Klana. It's a matter of life and death for me that what we do is successful and that works, that our customers are happy. I mean, that's how much I care. And, like, and so then I, I told this to my management team, and they started laughing hilariously. They're like, you're the most competitive guy we ever met. What the hell are you talking about? But to me, you know, even this was 14 years into my career or something, it was a revelation that I hadn't really understood, obviously, that that competitive aspect of my nature. And it took Beyond Borg to explain that to you. Exactly. (laughs) You know, talking about empathy, I know that giving back is very important to you as well. And you have launched a fund. um, And I'm curious, you know, are you going to use that fund to invest in tech startups? Would that be a way of giving back? to an ecosystem that has helped you survive and thrive? Yeah, I mean, that's an excellent question and something that we talk a lot. I think there are, there, there's one thing that I really like in Sweden. There's a, there's a word that you can't translate to English and it's called eldsjäl. It's actually the, you can, if you go to Daniel X Twitter, you find that he has eldsjäl as his uh, name and it means fire soul. So fire and soul, right? And the reason it's a different is because it doesn't represent entrepreneurs. It represents people that are passionate about something, people that really are, you know, devoted to some kind of cause or something. And my point is that entrepreneurs can sometimes be uh, fire souls. They can be genuinely driven by creating value for the customers, solving things. Those entrepreneurs that are more driven by making a buck, making money. And that's fine. I'm not judging. I'm just saying people are different and that's okay. <laughs> um, but you will also find fire souls. In NGOs, you will find politicians that are fire souls. You will find them running the local small arts club, you know. And so people, that's why I love that expression, fire souls. And I think that like, when I think about give one and what we're trying to give back, it's it's less critical to me whether they are, you know, for profit or non-profit and so forth. It's really how do we identify those fire souls and how can we support them? And how can we remove as many layers between them and their support so they can really go and do whatever they're passionate about. And, and because in the end, that fire soul is always focused at the impact. And that's what matters. It's you put some resources in and you want as much impact to come out as possible. And unfortunately, even in the NGO world, you will find tons of places where people go there because it looks nice and it's nice and I'm supportive. It doesn't necessarily mean that all the resources that are donated come to the right, you know, to the best use always, right? So as the same as companies. So you have that in most, all parts of the world. So I think that like uh, that's really what we're focusing on, thinking about it as as how can we support such initiatives that we think uh, you know are uh, are populated by such individuals, whether for profit or non profit, uh, that actually uh, can make an impact. Sebastian, this podcast is called Out of Office. What's your favorite thing to do when you're not in the office? <laughs> well, first of all, I have three fantastic kids that are four, six, and eight. So obviously, I I I love hanging out with <laughs> they them. Keep you busy. 
It very much indeed. So that's amazing. But but then if, if I do tell like there's one my my I actually had my 40th birthday and my wife gave me this fantastic gift, which is the one thing that I do for myself occasionally. It doesn't happen too often or anything, but it's actually horseback riding. So like there's nothing that oh wow. Yeah, it's nothing that clears my mind to just like, you know, galloping on a horse, feeling the wind, feeling the horse uh below me. It's just uh it's it's amazing and and you know it's it's fun it's fast and and, and it's slightly unpredictable because you, you never know what the horse is going to do so but it, it's a fantastic thing that i really enjoy doing well i hope you get uh, a lot of chances to do that sebastian shimirovsky thank you so much for being with us on out of office thank you so much for having me That was my chat with Sebastian Shimakovsky, founder and CEO of Klarna, one of the most valuable fintech companies in the world. I hope you enjoyed listening to his backstory. There were many parts that surprised me, but also made me understand why financial inclusion is so important to him. He's a fire soul. This episode was recorded as part of the Bloomberg Equality Summit. It's produced by Laura Carlson. I'm Alika Kapoor. Wherever you are in the world, I hope you're well, and as always, Thank you for listening. down has begun from May 14th to 16th a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg join heads of state influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions request your invite for this exclusive event at qatareconomicforum.com